Welcome to LeapCast. I'm your host, Dr. George James. LEAP stands for leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. And I'm on a journey to connect with high achievers and highlight their unexamined human moments. Tune in to learn how these high-achieving LEAP individuals were able to reach their greatest potential, face their most difficult challenges, and embrace the human moments that helped them along the way. If you want to get the episode highlights directly in your email, then head to theleapcast.com right now to subscribe. Hey everybody, welcome back to LeapCast, where we talk to leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. And I'm excited for our guest today, Six King, who I met in London, and we've been tight ever since. Yeah. But this dude is just so amazing. Six, welcome. How are you, man? Man, I'm really good, man. And hold on, we cannot forget that we met maybe a month or two before COVID, before the entire world changed. So I met you in the old world, okay? (laughs) (laughs) That is right. That was our last international travel before the shutdown. Yeah, that was a dope time. I'm glad we met, man. If I knew that, I would have had four more mimosas instead of two. (laughs) Look, I'm excited, you know, just to have this conversation with you. And, you know, part of what I do, the way I like to start off, it's really talk about your leap story. And what I mean by that is kind of your early beginnings, like maybe, you know, as a child, siblings, family, neighborhood where you grew up, the things that started to shape and form you before you got to your multiple levels of success. So bring us there. Tell us the beginnings. Well, you know, my mom is from Harlem. I was born in Harlem, New York, and I'm really, you know, a Harlem kid, born and bred. However, my mom moves to Florida. She's like, you know, it's the 80s. I'm not raising my son in this crazy New York. We can come back every summer and visit. So I was really shaped by like three different hoods. Okay. One of my aunts lived in Philadelphia and my mom, extended family, and a lot of people are from Philly. So I was raised in Florida. So I got the good Southern charm and all of that. But I had to go back to New York because my mom did not want me to be a country bumpkin. And I would spend my summers between New York and Philly. So growing up, I had friends, lifelong friends from three different hoods. Nice. And, and so it really shaped me into the person that I am today. I got my Southern charm from Florida. I got my hustle from New York. You know, I got my payments from Philly, you know? And so <laughs> that was coming up, you know, that was the thing. And, uh, you know, very early on, my mom introduced being an entrepreneur. I wanted a bike. My mom bought me a lawnmower at nine years old. <laughs> she was mom, like, go get the money. A bike. Right. <laughs> right. My mom bought me the lawnmower. She's like, go get the money, you know? And, you know, understanding that and understanding that if I didn't work, I didn't get what I needed. That was, that was an early, you know, introduction for me. And I had a full early understanding of what it means to be an entrepreneur and, or, and work ethic too. You know, if I wanted those Jordans, I had to mow 10 lawns. <laughs> I might want to settle for these Reeboks. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so, so, so. Or you go sell what was, I settled those, for, for some pro wings. You don't want that. Yo, listen. No, how about no wings? My mom, listen. <laughs> when my mom bought me that lawnmower, she didn't buy clothes anymore. Wow. She, bought, she said, if you want something, you have to pay for it. And it wasn't, it wasn't like hard. You know, I think even when I, you know, wanted a car, my mom would go, okay, I will match you 
dollar for dollar. But at eight, my mom stopped washing my clothes. She was like, you got to wash your own clothes. By eight, I learned how to cook. By nine, I was allowed to use the stove. So I was cooking full meals at nine years old. I was washing my clothes. And on the weekends, I had a lawnmower. And I started mowing lawns until I purchased like two more lawnmowers and I put my friends on. <laughs> wait, so, wait. So you started your whole business enterprise. You're like, I'm not just going to cut lawn. I'm going to get a whole bunch of people. Listen, I learned to work smarter and not harder early, <laughs> right? I was like, wait a minute. If I get this for this long and I employ, you know, three or four or five more people, you know, I could, you know, because I started getting referrals. Okay. And I, w- I was a kid that would do extra. I might paint your window seal, you know. I would go beyond what you paid me for, and that instituted referrals nice. and word of mouth. And so I started, I got up to, by the time I was like 15, I had over 200 clients. Wow. Right. <laughs> At so 15. From like eight or nine to 15, you were just cutting lawn. I was cutting lawns. And you had people working for you and a referral business. <laughs> right. Right. Your mom was like, see, because I'm the genius. I know what I'm doing. Shout out to mom. She knew exactly what she was doing. Knew exactly what she was doing. But, you know, then the 80s, well, you know, that late 80s, early 90s hit, crack hit. You know, people was losing their houses. It was it was a lot going on. I had a lot of friends get killed. And then I started, you know, moving around in different areas. I started selling, well, I could say it now. I started selling weed mm. to college kids. Okay. Never tried until in my 40s. <laughs> Never tried until I was in my 40s. I stuck to the rule, never get high on your own no supply. supply. Right. Right. We lived, you know, we lived in, you know, in the hood, but we lived not far from a university. And from that university, I remember the first time I sold weed, I, it was 10 dime bags. And I gave it to a friend of mine. I had a beeper. And I worked at Burger King at the time, too. Right? Right. So I had the beeper. I gave it to my friend. By the time I got to work, my beeper was going off. I called him back, and he's like, I'm out. What? I'm like, what? So I go back to my neighbor, and my neighbor was the one. I had washed his car. He was the one who actually gave me the 10 bags of weed as payment. Okay. So by him giving me the, this bag, hold on one second. Yeah. Sorry, man. No, you're good. Sorry about that. Oh, good. Like, well, it's a huge space. Why the fuck are you in my space? So you were saying that you were just giving out the supply. Your homie hits you back with the beeper. Yeah. Saying that he's out. Yeah. So, he, you know, he hits me back. We go back to, you know, I, I go back to the supplier. And, you know, he gives you another 10 dime bags of weed, do the same process. And my homie is like, we out. I'm like, again? So I go to Burger King. I go, hey, listen, I can only work two days out of the week. <laughs> and so, so my grandfather always told me there's no right way to do a wrong thing, but there's a smart way mm. that you have to figure it out. <laughs> and so we started selling massive amounts of, of weed to college kids back in the, you know, late i mean well, early 90s and we would go on we would have um letterman jackets and stuff like that we would have the letterman jackets 
and we'd have the Letterman jackets, and they would think that we were football players or basketball players. You know, they're on and campus. We, yeah, because we was on campus, right? And they would think that we, you know, we was you know playing sports, and we was playing sports, all right. We was coming in to get the money, so we would only sell to the frats. Okay. And I figured that listen, let's just sell to one person, one person only, which would be the frats, and they'll get it to whoever we needed, you know, to get it to. And that way we centralize everything. And then we amassed a lot of money, man. And then I tapped out. You know, when I saw things were getting a little bit crazy and, you know, it wasn't, you know, going to uh, fare out better for us. You know, it was going to go the wrong way. I was like, let's tap out. But you know what's crazy or really like impressive is that like you've told two stories probably before you're 20 where you started enterprises you started businesses and you had people working for you right and this whole and you say like your grandfather's right taught you this whole thing about you know doing things the smart way and your mom was like empowering you to be creative like was that were you always like this creative like innovative like person like i mean it sounds like from a young age that's kind of how you started since i can remember wow since i can remember my mother threw out the television when I was young, she said, if you want to hide something from a black man, put it in the book. So my mother came from Pan-Africanism. She started the All-African Revolutionary Party. She was the first one to take Stokely Carmichael, who was Kwame Ture, over to Ghana. You know, so my mom is a, a badass in her own right. Right, right. So I read everything. So by the time I was eight, you know, like, yeah, seven, eight, I had the autobiography of Malcolm X memorized. Wow. It was, our household was read, like, you know, like the revolution was coming tomorrow. And uh, so I grew up that. I grew up learning a lot of philosophy, literature, history. All of those things played a pivotal role in my, you know, in my upbringing. And then my dad is from Ghana, you know, on my mom's side, it's Afro-Cuban. And so I didn't even speak English until I was seven. Really? Yeah, I spoke Ewe and I spoke, and I spoke Spanish. <laughs> wow. Look at that. I didn't even know that. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I knew the Pan-Africanism and how that was a strong influence and still is in your life. But right. The multiple languages. Right. So like culture, language, reading, thinking smarter. And then you were given startup <laughs> like your seed money, <laughs> capital on some level or resources to, hey, go see what you can do with it. And it's right. like you've always had this way to multiply like what you started off with. Let me tell you something. My mother told me this early. There's a difference between a hustler and an opportunist, right? A hustler, whatever you give a hustler, they're going to multiply. They're going to give it back to you four, five, six, seven times. An opportunist is they only make money when there's an opportunity. And nine times out of ten, the opportunist will squander the opportunity. (laughs) And their biggest job as an opportunist is to keep a hustler from getting an opportunity. Because if a hustler gets an opportunity, they're going to flip it 80 different ways. Wow. So you recognize it's time to tap out of this we game. Right. Right. What then started to happen in your life? What were some of the journeys you went on? Because I, I know like you had some pivotal points and some really key moments. So what happened after that? What did you do then? Well, I lost every dime. Okay. You know, I had my first million by 17. I made my first million from selling weed, right? So we lost every dime when the house that we had all our money in was raided. 
right? This is at 19. So I was kind of forced to tap out. <laughs> <laughs> tap out now. Right. And um, we lost every dime. I lost every dime. I had like some money, you know, over my girlfriend's house at the time. And um, I left. I wanted to start over. And so I left and I moved to New York. And I moved to New York and I worked. And there, there's another thing, too, that my grandmother said. She said the only person that ever started out on top was a grave digger. And the only thing that should be beneath you is steps to take you to the next level. Yeah. Nothing else but steps. Yeah. So no job was beneath. I worked. I left. I had a little bit of money, you know, that I had on my girlfriend house. It wasn't much. And I moved to New York and I started working at a clothing store because I like to dress and a grocery store while living in the Bronx. (laughs) And. One job paid every two weeks. The other job paid every week. I was like, I'm going to always have a check. Yeah. And I worked seven days a week. Wow. And I really used my 24 hours, you know, to the utmost. I used those 24 hours to the utmost. And using those 24 hours to the utmost, I was productive, man. You know, that's what I could say. I was, I was super productive. I, I can I, imagine that. Yes, I worked yeah. right. I worked two jobs. Out of those two jobs, it was fourteen hours in between, you know, both of them. And then I slept eight hours and then whatever my travel time was. And I'm talking about that's using something to the max, man. You know? So I did that for two years. Okay. Now well now right. during that time, right? You mentioned like, you know, clothing, which I know has always been a big thing for you, and I know we'll get right. into that more. But does that mean you were just saving money, just stacking at this point? Or were you like thinking about the next thing already? I was stacking. I was stacking. And on, I would do, I knew that I wanted to be in film. Okay. And I knew that, you know, from a very early age, I was like, I'm going to be in the movies. I'm going to be an actor. I was always a thespian. You know, I was in, you know, school plays and things of that nature. So I knew I wanted a, a career in film and television. So three hours on the weekends, I would volunteer at a place called Duart Film and Video. Okay. And Duart Film and Video, they process movie film. They were around for 100 years. They recently just closed. They were around for like 100 years, and I would bring the guys their beer, and they would teach me everything. Nice. <laughs> I'd bring them, you know, a 12-pack of Miller, and, <laughs> you know, and I would sit in, and they would just show me everything. Show me how Hey, to, man, to there's a lot of places where a 12-pack can get you I'm telling Information, you. work, just yeah. keys. <laughs> and that was my film school. And I learned from the best. I learned from, I mean, some of the, I mean, when I tell you the best, the best, wow. I set in on edits with Martin Scorsese. You know what I'm wow. saying? Like, nice. like bringing him coffee and watching him like edit stuff and, you know, color stuff. And so it was the best education that I could get as a filmmaker. And um, come 92, my manager was an actor and who's one of my best friends to this day. And he was like, hey, Six, do you want to go on an audition? It was for this movie, this little movie called Sister Act 2. Yeah, yeah just a small, small thing. <laughs> small thing, right? And uh, he says, you know, I just did a PSA with my homegirl. And his homegirl was a then unknown Lauren Hill. Of course. And he's like, um, you know... We're going to all go, you know, to this, you know, audition. Would you like to come? I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. You know, I can act. Yeah, Yeah, why not? And so, you know, this is 
pre-social media, pre-cell phones, we had to have an authentic conversation. We always conversate while we're waiting in those, that long line. And we went in. And when I go in for my audition, the guy said, all right, can you sing? And I was going to sing Candy Girl, <laughs> my new audition. Yes. Soon as I opened my mouth, he was like, next. I was <laughs> like, what? My ego was shattered. Well, not shattered. It was poked at because I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Right, right. Who the hell do you think me. he is? Right. And my friend was like, well, that's the producer. I was like, well, that's what I'm going to be so I could do my own films and what have you. And, of course, Lauren got the part. She did an amazing job. And maybe, like, a few years later, my cousin called me from Philly. And he's like, hey, man, you know. But, you know, by this time, I'm, like, stacking money. And this was before direct deposit. <laughs> right, right. So you I just had a Nike. Check. Right. I had a Nike box full of checks, you know, because I, I didn't have the time to even cash, you know, my second job, you know. Wow. And so they call me and I mean, he called me. He said, I think you need to come and see if you can get a production assistant job over at this new place called Rough House. So I was like, all right, cool. I'll be over there after work. And so I worked in a clothing spot at the time. And. During that clothing time, I would wear a suit and I would have a briefcase. The briefcase didn't have shit in it. It just looked cool. It just looked right. It just looked super fucking cool. And I go over and the label at the time had DMX, Nas, Cypress Hill. Like they had a whole bunch of people on there. And uh, I go in and the president is high as a kite. And he has, he goes, hey, are you the producer that Will Smith d referred? And I go, yeah. <laughs> he goes, all right, cool. I'm going to show you who you're going to be working with. And so he walks me in, and it's Lauren Hill, it's Wyclef Jean, and it's Pros. And this is the Fugees. And this is their, this is the album that breaks them out. This is the album, the score. The score, yeah. Right. And so, because uh, their first album they were using, like, for Frisbees. Right. And I walk in. And Lauren Hill goes, sex! And I'm like, Lauren! Because, you know, we had lost each other's right. number. Yeah. You know, in the 90s, if you lost somebody's number... Oh, it was a rap. It, it was a rap. It had to take, you know, God and a miracle in order for you to run back into that person. So we seen each other. We started, oh, yeah. She's like, are you the producer on this on this thing? I'm like, yeah! She's like, oh, my God, I love this guy. I'm so happy. And I asked my cousin, I'm like, well, what does a producer do? And he goes, uh, oh, man, you just got to, like, negotiate all the prices. And I was like, oh, I could do that. I sold weed before. <laughs> so, I'm a businessman. Right. So I worked with this eccentric director named Aswada Yende. And uh, we do it. And it, it wins the MTV award. And then this guy disappears. And we would only find out years later why he disappeared. He disappeared because this guy was having children by his own daughters oh. and uh he's now serving a, a well-deserved life sentence and <laughs> yeah you know so i it forced me to start my own production company because usually a producer and a director you know get together and they you know they make magic and they form a production company mm -hmm. but I, I was forced to start my own production company and so you know i from that point that's when it was on now i mean i love you know your ability to just say i belong in this room right like i think there's people sometimes they would like nah that's not me or they wouldn't take it for well, lots of reasons maybe right but in knowing you 
you've always been willing to say, no, I belong here. And of course I could do that. Of course I'm that guy. And like, so how did you make it work? Like you're in this, like you're Lauren, like sex, right? All this moment is happening, but you still had to produce. Like, how did you actually then figure that out in that moment? What I learned from any job that I had is that they're going to train you anyway. <laughs> so I was never afraid to ask what I don't know and learn. So there's an old philosophical saying that I love and I say all the time, and it's ignorance can be cured, but stupidity is forever. Yeah. And so if you're ignorant about something, it can be cured. Just ask a question. Right? Right. And now in this day and age of technology, it can be cured with a simple press of a key. You can go to a place called Google and go, I'm dumb as F. And they'll be like, dumb as F or dumb is F. You know, like, right, right. like, like you, can, you don't really have to be ignorant. So, yeah. So I was just like, you know, I was smart enough to know I'll fix whatever it is, I'll figure it out. And if I don't, I'll hire somebody that can. Wow. So one, I think there's just so much like you, you knew and believed you were in the room, belong yes. in the room. You believe that, hey, I can figure this out. And if not, they will teach me. Then, Absolutely. Right, you're in this iconic moment. I mean, like people still play the score now and will rep that album easy. And yes. so you are a part of all of that. And so it wins an MTV award. Now, is this the MTV moment or did that happen after that? Oh, that happened years later. And the reason why is I never got my moon band from 96. <laughs> so I had a grudge to pick anyway. <laughs> like, He's like, I deserve like, something. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I just talked to a colleague of mine. They were like, you, know, you can still get it. You may have to pay for it, but like you can still get it or whatever. So I was like, oh, you know, I'll explore it when the time comes. But yeah, so I never received my moon band ever. Wow. And so as, a, you know, as being a producer for, you know, for the music video. So but that MTV moment came after. So I ended up producing and directing a lot of hip hop videos out of Philly and, you know, a lot of local artists, and, you know, and what have you. And, you know, my career, you know, started to open up and I started to work with everyone from Eve to like just everyone. Nice. Rough Riders, yeah. all of them, you know. And so I was in that 90s music video, you know, wave, you know. Especially at, doing you know, that, that time, right? I mean, maybe a little bit now, but there's a few people, I think, now. But I think that era, like, if you didn't have a video, like, right. you wasn't doing nothing. And I and, love the brown paper bag boys. They would come in, you know, can you do my video for 400000 you damn right. That's right. <laughs> and at the time, I don't know if you remember Video Jukebox, where you could call up and get a video played. I think so, yes. Right. So I knew the programming director. We were friends. Uh, so as an independent music video producer, any, any video that I <laughs> shot was placed on Video Jukebox, and I could get it played, which I made see. me a very popular producer, you know, independent producer, because I was guaranteed to be able to get your video played. That's right. And, um, you know, and what was moving, iconic, too, is that what they always did when those videos you knew the artist, you knew the song, yep. the label, and the director of the video. Right. You knew right who it from was. the beginning. Right from the gate. And so once that music video bubble started to wade, I saw the writing on the wall. I saw it maybe in like 99, really, mm -hmm. to be honest. 
And in 2001, I was with Eve, who I had worked with and did music videos, produced music videos for. We were at the MTV Awards, and it was me, Eve, Gwen Stefani, and on a dare, they dared me to walk up on stage with Little Kim, Maya, and Pink for the Lady Marmalade song. And on a dare, I did it. Wow. I think it was like a thousand dollar dare or something. And uh, they were like, but it was only for me to walk up. I actually walked up and said something. And people didn't know that I wasn't a part of the group until like later. So then maybe like two years later, I'm like, yo, this could be like a thing. I'm like, whoever is in front of the camera is going to be the new stars, whether you're famous or not. My friend was like, man, what are you talking about? So I'm telling you, man. And that was like the birth of like reality. You know, reality TV was just coming. You know, this is 03. You know, this is that cursor of reality TV. I'm saying, I'm telling you, if we do this DVD of me walking up on stage and accepting award show, we'll, we're going to be famous. It's going to be crazy. So I waited until the uh, 2003 Grammys. And I walk up on stage with Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. And I give B.B. King a shout out who I had sat next to. And uh, it went viral. You wow. know, you know that was really the first thing that ever went viral. It was crazy. People were like, well, who's the black guy in the Foo Fighters? And then Entertainment Weekly was like, no, this was a crasher. And then Carson Daly reached out and I did Last Call with Carson Daly. Wow. And once I did that, it was pretty much on, you know, we let them know. And I, we started getting like all of these clicks. We started making a lot of money from like click. Remember, you know, big clicks. We yeah. started making a lot of money from that. We put up a website. We started selling paraphernalia, Grammy Crasher. And Rick Schroeder stepped to me at Last Call with Carson and was like, I want you to be in my movie. Do you have a movie agent? And I'm like, yeah, let me talk to him. And I go in my dressing room. I count to 10 Mississippi and I come back out. <laughs> yes. Yes. I belong in the room. There's nobody going to keep you out of the room, whether it be on the stage, whether it be as a producer or in a movie. He's like, no, I belong here. I won't show up. Absolutely. He's like, I have a film that I want you to be in with Tim McGraw. I'm like, I'm there. So I'm in this movie called Black Cloud. It's me, Tim McGraw, one of my very closest friends, Alan e. Ballard, and Pooch Hall from The Game. You remember the show oh, The yeah, Game? Yeah. yeah. From The Game. We all did this uh, movie called Black Cloud. And I play this savvy boxing agent, you know, wants his five fighters to get the most money or, or what have you. And he booked me for that movie from Last Call with Carson Daly. And so I knew it was a thing. Howard Stern kind of tucked me under his wing. I would be on Howard Stern all the time after I crashed an award show. It was like, you know, six of my favorite black dude, man. Like, I don't know how you do it. And, um, and Stern really embraced me. He was the first one to embrace me. Urban radio-wise, Wendy Williams gave me my first, you know, radio interview. You know, just urban-wise. So shout out to Wendy. And um, it was on from that point. I started crashing every major award show. I would crash the MTV Awards. I crashed, I crashed the, uh, a couple of other awards after that. And we did this DVD called Hustling Hollywood. And uh, the DVD took off. And then in 05, I got a little cocky. I was going to crash the 2005 MTV Awards. I got there a little early. Security saw me, and they escorted me off. I was about Meanwhile, to say, by, by this point, don't people know you and know your face? They were, looking, they were looking for me, but the award show was always bigger than me. But when I would do it, it would literally be like this huge, you know, to do, you know, it would be like this huge thing. And so 
people, celebrities and people looked for me to crash their worship. Let's see what you're going to do. Do you know how many you eventually crashed? I mean, no pun intended, but six. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and my the sixth one was in 06, and it was with J-Lo. Okay. And it was with J-Lo, and I knew that streaming was going to be big at that time. So at this point, Hot 97 had reached out to me, and I was heading up the morning show at Hot 97. It's me. It's Ebro. No, it wasn't. Well, Ebro would come in. It was me, Miss Jones. It was Jonesy's show. Okay. So it was me, Miss Jones, and DJ Emmy. And Ebro would dip in now and then. He was a program director. He wanted to be a radio person. And so I was heading up the morning show. I was writing for the morning show. I was on-air talent at Hot 97. Nice. Couldn't get on at Philly. Nobody would put me on at Philly. <laughs> Philly is the hating-ass city. But nobody <laughs> would put me on at Philly. Nobody. But if you're in New York area, like Hot 97 is the station, right? You Bro, know? Hot, listen, God didn't want me to go to Philly's market. He wanted me to go to the number one market, bro. Yeah. And people would die to get at Hot 97 during that time. And you know, that been was there like for a, like forever, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, well, no, Envy is now over at Power 103, but at the time, hold on one second, man. Yeah. Yeah. So you were saying like, so at this point now you did six, people were used to it. You like what actually was interesting to me as you were saying all this is like, they talk about people's five minutes of fame, but you found a way how to keep like leveraging each moment to the next moment to the next moment. And you stretched it out and was making money all along this time. Making, uh, I was making money, man. I was making money. We were selling these DVDs at the time and I was making a lot of we we're making a lot of money, you know, and my friend who was the, my manager at the clothing store <laughs> who took me on to, you know, to the joint. I don't forget my friend, you know, nice. so like, you know, we're in it, man. We're in it. And uh, so I knew that streaming was coming. Yeah. Right. And there was no formidable name for it, but I knew that people were downloading music to the MP3s and, and that content was there was going to be a mobility to content. I knew that 99, 2000. So by the time 2006 came around, we had sold you know a ton of DVDs or what have you. I went to my IT person at Hot 97, and I go, you know what? I'm going to crash the 06 MTV Awards. Is there a way that you can make our movie downloadable like an MP3 so that people can just download it? And she's like, yeah, let me play with it. And she did. She made it where people could just download the DVD to their computers. And so at that time, if you know, if you remember back in 06, people weren't really buying things off the internet like that. It was still sketch. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was like, I didn't put my credit card in it, you know. Right. I knew that everybody had a dollar to lose. Right? You would gamble a dollar. Yeah. Everybody like, All right, I'll try. It's, oh yeah, it's only a dollar. It's only a dollar. So we made the DVD available for 99 cents. I go to PayPal at the time and I tell PayPal, listen, I'm going to have a lot of orders. Can you waive your fees? And they did. Wow. They didn't know how many orders I was going to have. Wait, they waived the fees. So they waived the fees and I crashed the MTV awards. And I went and I got the domain name MTV 6000 because I wanted people to remember. And whenever I would crash the MTV awards, 
they would it would be live, so they couldn't bleep out my website. But if they replayed it, they could bleep it out. Yeah. Well, the gods and technology and everything else was on my side. I crashed the MTV Awards, Panic at the Disco, J-Lo. I told everyone to log on to MTV 6000 because it was easy to remember. They logged on. 298 million people hit the site. What? Right? We were the first to coin the phrase of breaking the internet. And it was the birth of YouTube. Wow. And those six. So even when they bleeped my announcement of the website out, it was on YouTube. Okay. Not only did I end up crashing that award, but I ended up in Us Weekly <laughs> magazine. And then, of course, Howard Stern. And if you remember anything on terrestrial radio, whatever he said, people would go and buy. We had 173 million purchases. What? Of the DVD. <laughs> and PayPal was like, oh my gosh, we should have charged for these fees. We had over $173 million in our account. I mean, I we think lost, that, Go ahead. We lost it all by Monday. Okay. How did you lose it by Monday? My former friend had one job. <laughs> yeah. And his job was to transfer the money out of PayPal until oh. our account because they didn't have transfer back then. Yeah. Right? He transferred like a few million. Okay. But he didn't transfer the rest because he got scared. Pay, um, MTV sent a sister to sister order to PayPal. PayPal sent all the money back yeah. to the yeah. 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 I was devastated. And I got locked up that night. From they, locked, they, they, they finally caught me, right? Because when I would crash the awards, I would have my Friends pose as security, and they'd be like, "We got them," <laughs> and that's how we get. That's how we get away. But this time, I didn't have my friends do that. I'm like, I don't care, six one, whatever. And they're not going to be able to lock me up anyway because I actually had a ticket, and right. so they can't charge you with trespassing if you have there. a ticket because you're already there. So I knew that if they did arrest me, they would have to let me go because it wouldn't be trespassing. It would only be trespassing after they warned me, and I had did my research on the laws of trespassing. They have to warn you, and then if you come back, it's trespassing. So if I crashed it and I had a ticket, I was never trespassing in the first place. So I already knew the technicality of that. I didn't have my friends pose as security. They locked me up. Cops didn't even put me in handcuffs because they were Howard Stern fans. So they were like, yo, just tell Stern. We said, what's up? <laughs> in the cell with most deaf at the time. Wow. Because most deaf had did something on the red carpet and they locked him up. So me and most deaf are down at the precinct. We're in a cell together. And um, I'm just leaping up and down because they actually let me keep my cell phone, the cops. Shout out to NYPD's finest. <laughs> yeah. And Howard Stern, Howard Stern fans. You know, people was like, how did you get your cell phone in? I was like, membership has its privileges. And um, I'm calling my friends and I'm getting the numbers while I'm in the cell. And I'm losing it. I'm like, I'm fucking rich. <laughs> like, I'm losing it. We said. Right. And I didn't get out until the morning because we had to see the judge. And I get in the morning, Monday, and I get uh, the news, man. I get out like Monday afternoon or something like that. I was devastated, man. And probably what I should have did at that point, in hindsight, probably should have opened up a YouTube channel. But I was so done with everything that had to do with entertainment or whatever. Yeah. I was just like, you know, let me just go back to producing and being behind the scenes and, and just being quiet. So I sat down. 
Yeah, because yeah, yeah I can see how you know, a YouTube channel, especially at that point in the very beginning, with all that yes. you already had that momentum. But, right. but still, I love how like some people do things off of a dare or for the thrill or just to say, hey, they check a box. But everything you've done has been intentional. Everything yes. you've done has had a plan and has had infrastructure, has had like receipts, <laughs> like there's like things right. that are connected right. to right. what you're doing. And it's like it's the mastermind of it all of like, I'm going to use what people love or get blown by or attracted to to find a way how to earn some income. And then the other part of this that I love is like your ability to cultivate relationships, like your ability to cultivate with, you know, Hot 97, with Howard Stern, with the NYPD, right? Like that those relationships also helped fuel some of the work that you were doing. Listen, leveraging, and that's what you, you know, when you give a hustler something, they're going to multiply it. Yeah. Just like a woman is going to multiply it, right? You know, I've never been an opportunist. I've always been a hustler, you know, and a hustler, when you give them something, they just they're just going to flip it 18 different times, you know, and leverage it. You know, Rihanna's a hustler. Kanye West's a hustler. Jay-Z's a hustler. You know, they were given opportunities. Yeah. They were not opportunists. They didn't squander it. They multiplied it and they became billionaires. Yeah. And this is what true yeah. hustlers do. Yeah. Anyone else can only make money offer opportunity <laughs> you know those are opportunists so understanding that and knowing that you know that was that and i just you know i kind of you know, i took my money i you know i made some wise investments and, and uh i knew you know as you know in this artist thing you know you up and you down you you know it's this and then that but when i met paul i had just did like some corporate videos and i was i had did a blog over over at essence I was doing this blog called Giving Love a Chance. And I'm doing this blog. It's the single man's perspective. I just got out of a relationship. It was a relationship. And I had to really take some self-inventory on myself. Mm. And so my nefarious thing was I was going to invite all of these women over and pick their brains and become pitch. <laughs> I was gonna become the best bachelor right. ever, right? <laughs> and I started picking these women's brains, and I was like, "Oh my god, I need this more than they do." And everything I thought I knew about women, I had out. And so I started this blog called "Giving Love a Chance." And uh, shout out to Mel Wilbekin, he gave me the blog. And Paul had he was doing matchmaking, and Paul had his blog. And so I had did like this corporate, you know, corporations they take forever to pay. Thirty to sixty to ninety days. Ninety cable bill, right, easy. Right, the, the cable bill want theirs immediately. Yeah. So I had booked this trip to Essence, and basically I was like, my cash was like low. This, this had to be like twenty thirteen, and my cash was low, and I was writing a book. I was going to put out a book, giving love a chance. You know, secrets to men, women, and relationships. Which the book is out now. It's nice. on Amazon. Nice. And, no, this had to be like, it was, matter of fact, no, it was 2010. I'm sorry, like 2010. So I go to Essence and Emil Wilbekin says, can you host the Essence stage? But I had booked my room and when I got there, you know, like my check hadn't came yet. So my bank account is like horrible <laughs> at this point, right? Right. I had, I had enough money for one night at the Ritz-Carlton. And so I had enough money for one night at the Ritz-Carlton. 
And I'm like, oh my God, I don't even know how I'm gonna pay for the next three nights that I'm here at Essence. So I had to cover to the book. I had to start writing the book or what have you. And Emil Wilbekin had me host the Essence Music Festival. He had me host the stage inside of the convention center. Okay. And so I'm hosting the stage, but I'm plugging my book, right? And the book is like, it's ready for pre-order. <laughs> yes. Right? You're doing pre-ordering. So we're ready for pre-order. It was $25. And when I got off the stage and I looked at my PayPal, I had 1,800 pre-orders. Wow. For the book. <laughs> that you're still so writing. Now, Look, I love it. So now it's on. <laughs> That's now, like your mama giving you that lawnmower. Hey, boy, hey, make some money. Bro, I had over $37,000 in my account. I can't pay for my room. Now I'm not eating Popeyes. I'm eating, I'm eating at Mr. B's. We're going out. <laughs> <laughs> McDonald's is not smelling like filet me young, no, right? No. <laughs> like, I'm killing it, right? So I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, and, and of course I had to finish that book out immediately, you know, like you know when now. I got when I got back. But it was, you know, it was about you know just having faith and favor, yeah. and and also you know like you know in gratitude, we you know you get you know to those you know to those points, which brings me to doing my first action movie, which was Once Upon a Time in Philly. I love that, once again, you have had faith in you and faith in what you're trying to do and that it would work out, right? And then, you know, when you mentioned, like, in favor, right? The start of, like, I'm going to do my part and we'll see what happens on the other side. Right. And then, because a lot of people are just like, oh, okay, I just hope or imagine or believe that it'll just happen without doing your part. You know, that's how work. it works. Right, right. They go together. And, you know, I just love that you've been willing to do that. So as we wrap up, there's four questions I like to ask people. And one is, what are you doing now? And you've been doing this for a little bit from probably the time I met you. I know you've been doing this type of work from not only being a film producer, but your other work that you've been doing uh, that's been connected to fashion that I find fascinating. And so can you start there? What are you doing now? I'm shooting um, part two of my film, Once Upon a Time in Philly. And uh, the first one was amazing. It was non-actors. I had it was people that I moved around in the streets with that I went back and got. They was real big steppers, <laughs> right? And I went and got real people, and we did this movie. And it was you know it was a gangster movie with a you know with a twist to it, you know. And it got really popular on Amazon. And now we're doing part two. Nice. And even in fashion, we shoot a lot of the fashion shows. Tommy Hilfiger has been a mentor to me for the last twenty years. We're a full multimedia company. So, you know, I'm not the jack of all trades and the master of none. I focus on media and media can take you into so many different ways. You can be in front of the camera, behind the camera, producing, directing. I've always stayed in that film of media, whether it's radio. You know, I've always did that. I never, you know, like did media and then cut hair. You know, um, right, right. <laughs> you know you're chasing rabbits and I never wanted to be that person to chase rabbit, but Media was a vehicle that took me to all of these different locations and places that has given, you know, my career, you know, such a boldness and character on it. So we shoot fashion shows, we shoot uh, fashion content, we shoot movies, we shoot commercials. So I'm doing that. And I have another film called The King of Kush with Louis Guzman, who saw my first film, Once Upon a Time in Philly, and was like, Six, I got to work with you. To work with an icon with Dream Come True, you know? 
being a little black boy from West Ham projects, you know, and now on, uh, you know, doing things in, the, in this big world of, of film and television. It was a dream come true, man. I love it, man. And, you know, like you said, too, from your own film projects and storytelling to filming, you know, fashion shows and like, I'm, you know, you're always I love like the stuff that you put out there, right? You're always showing that you're a world traveler and well dressed and that you and you know, you know, some people. And I think like media has opened the door for you to do all that. It's a part of who you are, but media has helped to enhance that in lots of different ways. And I love like how you show people that and that you've always have you always have a plan. And I think some people just like, all right, I'm just going to jump in it. But like you've been intentional, you work hard and you've had a plan throughout all of this. One of the other questions I ask, right, is, and you've had the ability to collab and work with lots of people and have relationships with a good amount of folks. But if you could collab with someone new or maybe go back to work with someone that you had worked with in the past, who would that be? If I had to collab with someone new in a film aspect, it would be Martin Scorsese. Nice. Yes. And then someone that I worked with in the past, it would be Eve. I would love to do a romantic comedy with Eve. She's my sister. I love her. So hopefully that'll that'll come to fruition. You know, that's good. Yeah. And and Eve is another person. Shout out to both of those Martin Scorsese and and Eve, how they, you know, have their career has pivoted all along the way, but they've been consistent. Eve has been an entertainer and and the same thing, you know, Martin with movies. So that's awesome. When you think about mental wellness, what does that mean for you? It means emotional stableness. I think, you know, me and you, we talked on our last one and I said, you know, I'm going to start doing mental credit checks, yeah, right? Yes. <laughs> right. So 2020 has proven that, you know, mental wellness is just as important as going to get anything that we do, haircuts, you know, your nail appointment, your massages. I think 2020 has uh, forced all of us to take a second look at our mental wellness and not stigmatize it. To understand that if we don't exercise our wellness, if if our therapist is not as important as our hairstylists or our barbers, that we have a problem, you know. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people understood those problems in 2020 when they were forced to, you know, look at that man in the mirror and face a lot of, you know, things in their lives that made them look within. No, that that's so powerful, and I love it. <laughs> yes, I remember what we talking about. Yeah. So credit checks, right? Like, yeah, yeah credit checks, man. You do, right? Like in this day and age, right? Like, are you, have you seen a therapist? Are you, are you open right. to therapy? Right. We right. might need to like have that like early on in the process. Absolutely. And making therapy cool, making yeah. mental health is cool. You know, it's been such a stigma on it, but you know, it's like, I'm, I'm cool with it. I'm like, yo, I got therapists. When, when the last time you've been to therapy, you know, and, and making it cool. I think, you know, when we can, make something cool and bring the cool of it, especially in the African-American community, because all we think we need is Mary J. Blige and Jesus, and we're good, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that is a winning combo, but I'm just saying. You're right, that's a, a winning combo. <laughs> but you right. might need, you need a little more than that. You need, you need to sit on somebody's sofa, no, you know. Man, and I appreciate that, too, because, you know, for me, it's been a lot of the work of trying to work with people who sometimes don't have the opportunity to talk to someone, whether it be people of color, whether it be black folks, but also, like, why I did this podcast like leaders, right. entertainers, athletes, performers, because sometimes they got so many people that they got to answer to that they don't often have someone they can talk to themselves. 
There so, we go. You know, I appreciate you saying that. Last question I'd like to ask folks is, if you were to think about what mental wellness advice would you give to your younger self? And that could be as early as yesterday or any time in the past. What would that be? Don't, you know, sentiment turns into resentment and resentment boils. So talk to someone early because, you know, in talking to someone in therapy, it doesn't make you better. It just shows you a different way of navigating the problems. That's it. People think that therapy is supposed to make you better. It doesn't. It just shows you options. And when we have the breakdown, it's almost like when we're on navigation in our cars, if we're not connected to the navigator, we just pull over (laughs) until we can, you know, until we can figure it out. And that's when the therapist comes in (laughs) and goes, no, you, you know, you can actually, you don't have to go that way. You can actually go, you can make a left or you can make a right. And I think that's the, you know, that's the, the way that I could to put it. It was like, I wouldn't have been as angry (laughs) growing up as I am. And, um, you know, there's two things that my grandmother said, and I'll leave this with you. She said that when you lose your temper, you leave your hands in the life. If you, when you lose your temper, you leave your hands in the life of, you leave your life in the hands of a fool. Mm -hmm. So when you lose your temper, you leave your life in the hands of a fool. Yeah. And she also said that when you're born, you look like your parents, but when you die, you look like your decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, both of those are powerful. Yeah, and yeah. you know, I appreciate you know how you're highlighting that you know therapy can give you options and choices. It made me think about sometimes when you know you pull up the navigation and it gives me a route, and I'm often like, ah, I don't know if I really like that route. I know there's a pro- bunch of others, and I click to see what are the options, and there might be three or four options. Right? right, so I'm not stuck with the one, and so like that's what I think about when you said that. It's like, yeah, therapy right. gives you that, and I love like you know how you share like you know the different you know sound pieces of advice from from your elders, right? From the people that, you know, from your grandmother and others in your life. Six, you're, I know that like, there's a whole part two and three that we could talk about. Like we could really like take some time to strip through around the mastermind and the brilliance of the things that you've done. But I appreciate that you've been willing to come on and share and your openness and your, and just how you've done things and the way that that just guided you. And, you know, I hear your passion for media and creating uh, opportunities and telling stories but really just being of impact and not compromising who you are, that you always show up saying, I belong here and I'm going to look fly and I'm going to be all right. And I'm going to make, and I'm going to put other people on because I know that you've done that throughout your career and continue to do that. So I love that. And so before we end, I'll give you this. Is there any last things you want to say before we wrap? Well, you know, you have to make your fingers long. You have to enjoy this life. You have to be intentional about it. I don't like working out. I do like looking fly. I have to work out. But you know what? I live life because, as my grandmother says, there's never been a fat skeleton. <laughs> so so understanding that and being intentional. We have 168 hours in a week. 56 of those, if you get eight hours of sleep, are spent um, sleeping. If you work 40 hours, you still have hours left over. When you do all of that, three hours or four hours of working on your dream and three hours self-care and all of those things, you still have 34 hours left. And so what are you doing with your 34 hours? How are you allocating your time that is not promised to you? Be intentional. Be purposeful. But more so, believe that you have a purpose, you know, and build and they shall come. Yeah. Keep moving. Listen, 
Noah heard from God, but Noah knew he had to build that ark and put that work in. Or Noah ass would have drowned. So, right, right. So we can't avoid the work. <laughs> Gotta put in that work. Gotta we gotta put it. that work in, man. And get you a therapist. Therapy uh-huh. is cool, man. Therapy, if you can't have a barber or a beautician, if you don't have a therapist, man, therapy in 2022 is cool because we've gotten through 2020. And if you're in 2022 and you don't have a therapist on dial, you corny, okay? Get that therapist. Right. Therapists are lit. <laughs> We're flipping it. I love it. Look, right. I love, I love, I love the, the combos. You got right. Mary J and Jesus, right? right? You got your barber and your therapist, right? Come on right. now, right? If you got right. that, you should be good. And you go build it. Come on now. There, what else do you there, need? There we go, man. You know, we're doing mental credit checks That's and, right. and from here on out, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for allowing me to share a part of myself that I always get to share and on social media and things. And I'll be back for part two. Yeah, I'm man. doing some amazing things, man. And, um, and I look and, forward to, like, you know, with everything that you shared, I look forward to like you and I continue to do more and to collab. Our mutual friend, Paul Brunson, who was on the podcast yes. before, you know, connected us. And like, there's so many ways we align. And I think like, I look forward to like you and I doing more and collabing even further as we go forward. So thanks, man. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Wow. What an incredible ride we just went on with another great member of the Leapcast community. I appreciate you listening and hope you got some tangible value from the episode. Please let us know what you think by leaving a comment, rating, and review. As always, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Dr. George James, and I'll see you next time.